You are listening to the Union Smack podcast. This retro review of In Your House 4 was originally released on August 10th, 2020 and may include topics both professional and personal that have no impact on the present day. Wrap up warm, grab your thermals and feed the huskies because Union Smack is back with your weekly dose of retro wrestling goodness. I am of course your host, the Maniac Mac Tenant, and even though the man of the hour won't be with us for the foreseeable future, Travis is here in spirit, is listening from his new abode in Louisiana, and for myself and all of you Smackheads, we can't wait to have you back, my friend. However, we do not know when that will be, so for the foreseeable future, you have to put up with me babbling away. But I will of course endeavour to do my finest, fill you all in, ladies to the front please, men, trim those moustaches, as we continue our journey through every in your house ever. Now, before we begin, as per usual, you can find me on Twitter at the Perfect Tenant. You can find Travis on Twitter at the Habiki TMD. Go and show him some love. Log on to unionsmack.bigcartel.com where you can purchase an official shirt from all of Travis's shows. And lulu.com where you can purchase my first book, The Undertaker, A Trip Down Death Valley. And very soon, NXT UK Year One, which I've been working on for God knows how long now. But it is, it is coming. The front cover is being done and finalised. The book is almost all put together and I hope to have it out to you by the middle of September. Now, before we begin our next In Your House review, In Your House 4, The Great White North, I'd like to just take a moment to pay tribute to British wrestling legend Mark Rollable Rocco. He passed away in this last week. 69 years of age that's no age at all he was a legend you know known all around the world especially here in britain as well as over in japan where his feuds with uh, tiger mask were the stuff of absolute legend if you want some actual proper professional wrestling and not you know not the phony stuff we're given today then do log on to google or youtube or wherever you find your your wrestling goodness and look up Mark Rollable Rocco. Not just his stuff in New Japan with Tiger Mask, but his stuff in World of Sport, All-Star Wrestling. Anything you can find is worth a watch. He is a shoe-in for the Union Smack Hall of Fame, which is close to a comeback, fingers crossed. And we have lost a absolute legend. Well, well before his time. So rest in peace, Rollable Rocco. You will be sadly sadly missed just like you are i believe i'm ready for some retro wrestling goodness but before we get going i'm going to take a quick break and leave you in the capable hands of the former wwe united kingdom champion the bruiserweight pete dunn get a drink get comfy and when i come back we will delve into in your house for the great white north I'm the Bruiser AP Dunn, and you're listening to the Union Snack Podcast.
Welcome back, Smackheads, and here we go. The In Your House train is chugging down the tracks. We are on In Your House 4, the Great White North, October the 22nd, 1995, from the Winnipeg Arena in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Now, before we start, I have to say that if you've never watched any of these In Your Houses and you're expecting something pretty decent, then you're in for a bitter disappointment with this one. We have finally found an event that is as bad, if not worse, than King of the Ring 1994. Don't believe me? Jump on the network and watch it, or slip in your DVD, whatever you prefer. This is a horrendous event, but we put in the work, so you don't have to bother. The Dark Match... Of In Your House 4 saw Bob Spark Plug Holly defeat Rad Radford. Thank Christ we didn't have to sit through that match. Though, some of the matches we did get, it might have been quite good. Because Rad Radford, of course, portrayed by Louis Piccoli, who you probably know better from ECW and possibly WCW, depending on what and when you watched. Holly could work when he wanted to. He showed that at King of the Ring against Road Dog. Rad Radford was a pretty good worker. He was a jobber. Uh, if you don't remember him, then look look up some of his stuff. He was kind of innovative for his time. But after that match, the event began with the Canadian National Anthem sung by Joni Wilson, who screeched her way through this. But they're Canadians, so it's fine. They didn't care, and it didn't matter. God bless Canada. We're then taken to a video of Gorilla Monsoon, who announces that Shawn Michaels isn't cleared to compete. This is due to a so-called concussion that he sustained. We will have more on that later, believe me. Gorilla says that the WWF Intercontinental Championship will be given to Dean Douglas, who Michaels was meant to defend against, and Douglas will then defend it against Razor Ramon. It's a very well done cold open, I'll be honest with you. It gives the event a, a, a different feel, if you like, rather than just oh, another, you know, C-level pay-per-view. We cut into Vince McMahon and Jerry Lawler at ringside, and this is where everything begins to go downhill, sort of production-wise, because it is plagued with audio problems from the very beginning. The sound cuts out, they have to redo their introduction... It's, it's sort of a fitting mantra for the event itself. Match one, the first cab off the rank. Fatu versus Hunter Hurst Helmsley. And this isn't head shrinker Fatu. This, for those of you young enough to not remember, is Fatu in between head shrinker and Rikishi. Hip Fatu. Um, gangster Fatu if you like, rapper Fatu, Red Beanie Fatu, I'm sure most of you remember that. This rivalry, it stems from a coming together between Hunter Hearst Helmsley and Fatu on the Superstars the day before In Your House 4. During Fatu's match, Hunter cut a promo on the Samoan in a split screen and following the bout, Fatu found Helmsley backstage. As referees were trying to keep them apart, Helmsley sprays Fatu with his cologne bottle. 
you don't need to see this footage going into in your house it is shown pre-match so everybody knows why this exists on a you know supposed pay-per-view event the first thing you realize however when you look at this card and as fatu is making his entrance is that fatu made this show in canada and bret hart and owen hart did not so that is the sort of booking mentality we're dealing with the match starts lively with fatu in command it's decent as well considering the limitations of both men in 1995 i mean don't get me wrong rikishi was a a very good wrestler for, for his size in the attitude era and obviously triple h is is triple h i know some people wouldn't put him in their top 10 of all-time greats but he is at least for me in the top 20 in 1995, however, they were both still really green. Helmsley had just come in from WCW as Jean-Paul Levesque, where he was sort of a member of the Blue Bloods. Fatu was just split up with Sione as the new head shrinkers. So, you know, this, this was new territory, kind of, for both men. They weren't used to having this stage, even though um, Hunter Hearst Helmsley had been at SummerSlam. He, he, you know, it wasn't a, a great showing at all. However, you wouldn't have known that both men were still finding their feet as single stars watching this. It was a very good opener from two undercar talents here. There was a nice work rate from both men straight from the beginning. It was as if they were trying to impress someone, which I suppose they were. Fatu counters the pedigree. No sells the DDT because, you know, the head shrinker, hard head mentality is still there. And then Fatu misses the Samoan splash and Hunter hits the pedigree for the victory. Now, there is a bit of, you know, illogical going on here because obviously Fatu misses, doesn't hurt his head at all. But then the pedigree, which drops him on his head, is meant to put him down for the count. It can be overlooked. Look, this card is atrocious, okay? Not to spoil it for anyone listening. And don't fast forward to the end either. But this is an atrocious card. King of the Ring 95 level bad. So little you know, little bits that make sense like that can be overlooked when the rest of the match is good. If this was an A-plus pay-per-view with five you know, world-class classic historical matches on it, this probably wouldn't you know, even get a look in. But as it is... This is one of the best matches of the entire evening. And unfortunately, the evening goes downhill pretty fast from here on out. Following the match, uh, Jerry Lawler, he snags Helmsley at ringside, does a little interview for him. But then behind Helmsley, Henry Godwin sneaks in with his slot bucket. For those of you who, who didn't follow WWF in 1995, who were more WCW, then Fatu was just a stopgap for Helmsley. I'm going to stop calling him Helmsley and call him Triple H because it's much, much quicker. The real storyline was with Henry Godwin, who Triple H had attempted for weeks and weeks before this on Superstars and Raw to, you know, to get the slot bucket away from him. In fact, I remember on several episodes that he paid a manservant to confiscate the slot bucket when Henry Godwin was distracted in a match. I mean, it wasn't 
Shakespeare, it wasn't Dickens, it wasn't Hart Austin, but, you know, the little segments, they were entertaining enough. Let's not forget it's 1995, the year of almost zero creativity from WWF, so let's take what we can get and, and be grateful for it. Hunter speaks in an awful, awful British accent when he's, he's announced from Greenwich, Connecticut, so, you know, accent isn't needed. But as he talks, like I said, Godwin pops up behind him. Hunter uses Lawler as a shield. He cowers away and then he escapes with Henry Godwin in pursuit. And that will lead us into In Your House 5 next week. The uh, the infamous Hogpen match. <laughs> next, we are taken backstage where Doc Hendricks, Michael Hayes himself, is with the British Bulldog and Jim Cornette. We take a look at Davies' heel turn on Diesel and the Bulldog pinning Big Daddy Cool on an episode of Superstars, I think it was. It might have been Raw. Don't quote me on that. The Bulldog says that Diesel can't hide in this hellhole and he'll beat him tonight. I, I haven't gone deep into this promo here, you know, because we've all got lives to live. But it was a really good promo by the British Bulldog, who I think and feel was going through a phase of being a great mouthpiece in 1995. Now, the phrase Davy Boy Smith and great mouthpiece yeah, don't belong in the same sentence usually. If you've ever seen his stuff in the Attitude Era where he's coked off his tits, you know, drugged up to the eyeballs, he can hardly focus on the camera or get a word out. But here, at the tail end of 95... Very good job indeed. Next up, we have the WWF Tag Team Championship match. Champions, the Smoking Guns, defend against the 1-2-3 Kid and Reza Ramon Chico. This match existed solely to continue the never-ending feud of the 1-2-3 Kid eventually turning heel on Reza Ramon. And we'd have to wait another month for that. But, you know, this was meant to be their reconciliation after the 1-2-3 kid had cost Ray's Ramoni's match with Dean Douglas in your house three. If you don't remember that, then skip back on the channel. Me and Travis reviewed that last time out. Now, despite this, you know, there was a novelty here. Babyface versus Babyface. Even though the smoking guns were about to embark on a heel run with Sonny as their manager in 96... It was a very odd match to witness. You know, really odd because you never really felt like the, the guns were equal to, to Razor Ramon, which, of course, they weren't in WWF's eyes. They were tag team champions, but here they existed solely to to further, you know, a more important feud. And the other thing to this is that at the beginning of the show, we'd already been told that Razor Ramon would challenge Dean Douglas for the Intercontinental Championship Later in the show. And 1995 Scott Hall twice in one night was overkill. Just awful. It would have made much more sense for me. For Razor Ramon and the 123 Kid. To challenge Dean Douglas and a, a you know another partner for the Intercontinental Championship. With the person getting the deciding fall taking the title. Then Razor could have won the gold. Which you know. No spoilers, but he does later. Uh, and that would have added fuel to the fire of the heel turn of the 1-2-3 kid. Kid could have then blamed Razor for costing him the Intercontinental Championship. And the heel turn would have made 
much more sense than than it actually did. I, I can't pull to mind right now the reason they gave for Kid turning on Razor. But yeah, we, we're getting there in the next few uh, next few in your houses. But it would have been a much better you know excuse than what they did actually come up with. Nevertheless, it was a fine tag team match. They all did the best they could with the circumstances, and you know, circumstances were tag team champions exist here to you know further Razor Ramon's career, basically. Before we begin the match, there was a guy in the front row who was having all sorts of problems for the first part of the night. The first match between Fatu and Hunter Hearst Helmsley, a crew member had to have a word with him for something. And then during this match, there was a big, and I mean big, gentleman in a tracksuit top, looked awful, who was visibly arguing with him for having the wrong seat. So that distracted me a little bit from the action. But nonetheless, it was a very good match. One, two, three kids showed his heel tactics by provoking Billy and pulling down the top rope. But the crowd cheered it. Because no one was really sure who to cheer for in a a face-versus-face match. So they just went with 1-2-3-Kid and Razor Ramon. Because, you know, they're the standout baby faces. Even though Kid was clearly slowly turning heel. There was a nice moment here when the referee was distracted. And Razor and Bart Gun pulled their respective partners over the other to get the upper hand. And then the end of the match came when Razor hit the Razor's edge on Billy, but Kid wanted the glory, so he forced Razor to tag him in, and once he was in, Billy reversed the pinfall, and the smoking guns won. It was a good ending. You know, Kid had played the, the part of the condescending fake babyface, you know, just to, to try and get Razor back on side or match. There were glimpses of his heel character coming out during it, and then the ending just completely shattered that. He couldn't get his own way. He actually threw an actual tantrum in the ring and attacked both of the smoking guns. I will be honest, it, it got Kid over as you know an upcoming heel, but it made the smoking guns look weak. The WWF Tag Team Champions were beaten up without resistance by one of the smallest men on the roster. Fuck. Like, what a way to bury your titles. Absolutely ridiculous. But, you know, the end was the end. And all they got in the way of an apology from Razor was just a, a shoulder shrug. Just like, oh, well, what do you want me to do? I have to interject at this point. Um, if you hear any external noise on this recording, then my noisy fucking neighbours won't shut up. And they're having a party. As I choose to sit down and record. So forgive me for that. There's nothing I can do. We are taken back to Doc Hendricks. Who is trying to sell Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels life-size cutouts. Oh yes. This is what Michael Hayes has been reduced to in 1995. We've seen it on the past three in your houses. When he was trying to sell uh, a few shirts. And he was stood there in his Shawn Michaels shirt. And... The leather Shawn Michaels cap, which I bought as a kid, and the gloves. And he looked absolutely ridiculous. He looked like Michael Hayes trying to emulate 75 Michael Hayes. That's what he, he looked like. 
This, however, was just as painful as the rest of the, you know, the merchandise pitches. It was almost like watching a second-hand car salesman trying to flog the worst car on the lot to somebody who owned a BMW. Terrible. And to make it worse, WWF was still trying to shift all those classic VHS tapes they'd made, especially for In Your House 3, that they gave away with the, the sale of the shirts. Giving them away free with every purchase, they had so many of them. Though I would be interested in knowing exactly what they put on those VHS tapes. So if you ever ordered, if you lived in America or Canada, and ever ordered a, a shirt during the the In Your House pay-per-views, and you got one of these free classic VHS tapes with it, then drop me a line on Twitter or in the comments here and, and let me know like what matches are on them because I'm actually fascinated to see whether it was an old Coliseum video tape just repackaged or whether they actually went to the bother of compiling a new VHS just to, to flog with their merchandise. Next up was the in-ring debut of Goldust. Goldust versus Marty Janetti, to be more precise. Poor old Marty Janetti. What a life and a week he's had. <laughs> I really don't think social media is for Marty, if I'm being honest. First, he asks followers on advice about having sex with a potentially underage girl and then a girl who could possibly be his daughter, but he's willing to risk it. And this week, he basically comes out and admits to murder. If I could live in someone's head for one day, it would be Marty Janetti's. Absolute shambles. But I can't help but laugh because he is the gift, ladies and gentlemen, that keeps on giving. And I know drugs and drink have taken their toll on him, but fuck me, what a life. I saw him. Here's a little Marty Janetti story I don't think I've ever told. I saw Marty Janetti at the For the Love of Wrestling event last year in Liverpool, England. And he turned up to the event to sign autographs already pissed out of his head. He was signing half cut. He was taking pictures drunk. And then to top it all off, he did an in-ring interview um, with Brutus Beefcake and the organiser of the event. It was meant to be a little uh, a little thing about the barber shop, etc. When Shawn Michaels put him through the window, not only could Marty Janetti barely talk, but he almost fell through the ropes into the ring. He could not stand. Brutus Beefcake had to help him into his chair and the interviewer sort of skirted around Marty when asking questions because all you, he ever got from Marty w w was this. <laughs> that, that was all you could hear from Marty Janetti. So, you know, God bless him, but fuck me, Marty, sort your life out. As for this match, the Goldust promo, which came before, was very good indeed. But for a debut match itself against one of the most reliable workers in the industry, and Marty Gennetti was one of the most reliable workers, despite his problems. Even in even in 95, he could, he could go. He could turn it on. This was terrible. Absolutely fucking boring, hideous. 11 minutes, 15 seconds of absolutely nothing. Nothing at all. 
And thank God, I have to say, that Dustin Rhodes changed his Goldust outfit very shortly after this to the, almost like the Tim Foyley one. This was skin tight, see-through, and you could see his white pants underneath. And when I say pants, American audience, I mean underwear. Marty Gennetti started at pace, but the crowd were dead for this. I, I, I think... Maybe it was Marty Gennetti against Goldust. It was like, why debut Goldust against you know, someone irrelevant on the card? Good worker, but irrelevant. But the crowd were dead already. There was a lot of stalling, a lot of staring down. Credit where it's due. Okay, I've not been the biggest Dustin Rhodes fan over the years. Dustin Rhodes blocked me on Twitter um, first time round, my first Twitter account, before I left Twitter for a while and then came back. Because I said he, you know, he'd had his time in the ring, etc., etc. He's got a lot better in recent years. He's put a lot more into his in-ring. I don't watch AEW, but you know, I've heard good things. He put his all into the Goldust character here, but he didn't put the same amount of effort into the in-ring, which was a shame because he was a good talent in '95. If you'd ever seen him in WCW before he came to WWF. When they let him go and just let him be himself, very good wrestler. But it never really seemed to click. At least for me, you can disagree if you you want. Wrestling's an opinion-based business. But he never really seemed to to mesh the character of Goldust with the in-ring of Dustin Rhodes until much later on in his career, I, I don't think. Reliable, but no. The whole... Kit and Kaboodle wouldn't come together, for me, at least until well into the Attitude Era. But, you know, that, that's just my opinion. They lost the crowd completely when the work rate slowed, and it slowed to an absolute crawl. It felt more like an hour than just over ten minutes. Goldust countered a flying fist and hit a gourd buster for the victory. Basically an inverted suplex front slam. And it was odd. Seeing Gold just not use the curtain call. But he was finding his feet as a character. Hadn't got all the ins and outs worked out yet. Marty Gennetti, I have to say, in his defence... Um, <laughs> no one can defend what you know, he says on social media. But here, in his defence, Marty Gennetti was the right man for the job. Because, like I've said, even in 95, good worker. Could turn it on when he needed. He just didn't choose to here. And the match suffered for it. But worse, I think the Goldust character suffered for it more and would for months and months to come. At Survivor Series, he faced Bam Bam Bigelow in, you know, it was a bore. Let's, let's be honest. Me and Travis have gone over time and time again how Bam Bam Bigelow in 95 wasn't the Bigelow of 92, 93. And then Goldust wouldn't compete on pay-per-view again until the Royal Rumble in January 96. So he went from November 95 to January 96 and didn't compete on a pay-per-view. And then when he did, the feud he was given, and I think we might go into that uh, when we get to In Your House 6, etc. It just wasn't a very good feud. Um, all, all the basics were there. Razor Ramon, Scott Hall, who was on his way out of the company in '96, you'd have thought he'd have wanted to put a new, you know, a new talent over as much as possible. But he, Scott Hall, wasn't comfortable with the the homophobic stuff. He wasn't comfortable with Dustin Rhodes 
you know, really hammering on the the camp door, if you like, because ninety six gold just really hammered home, you know, the gayness of that character, if you like. And that's not me being derogatory. That that's just what it was. The Goldust character could be very gay. The way he'd kiss Razor Ramon and you know fondle him up, and Scott Hall just wasn't comfortable with it, so he didn't put his all into that feud either. And it just all went against Dustin Rhodes and the Goldust character. Next up, dear God Almighty, Yokozuna versus King Mabel. Oh yes, the match you've all been waiting for. <laughs> oh God. Did Mabel ever have a good hairdo? Every time you saw him, that fucking mohawk got bigger and bigger and bigger. In fact, I, I watched four and five back-to-back -back for these reviews, and you wait till we get to In Your House 5. Jesus Christ, it's a parrot. Anyway, this was, as you'd expect, utter, utter garbage. The most interesting thing was a young rhino carrying Mabel to the ring as one of his entourage. What the fuck was that bulldog from Mabel, if you've seen it? If you haven't, I'll try to put a, a picture up on screen. I know Travis posted one on Twitter earlier this week. He was on his ass and almost out of the ring before Yokozuna even thought about going down to one knee. It looked awful. And I I think he missed most of it as well. So how do you miss Yokozuna? He's not an easy target to miss, but Mabel managed it here. There was an amusing moment, one, when Yoko fell on Jim Cornette outside the ring, and God bless Jim Cornette, he uh, he made the most of that. And then the utter kick in the balls, spit in the face to the audience, after we were forced to sit through this for, it might be five minutes of punch, kick, chop, choke, repeat. After having to sit through that, and even being given this, it's like people paid to see this match. <laughs> paid to see it, Christ. This ends in a sickening double count out. All of that for absolutely nothing. Whoever booked this should be fired on the spot. Because they couldn't have The Undertaker versus King Mabel, which is what they originally booked and planned for, because Mabel, clumsy fucker that he was, broke the Undertaker's orbital socket in his face and put him out of action for a few months. So this was the trash we got instead. And then, after this, they stood in the ring, and it must have been for another minute and a half, just staring each other down while Jim Cornette and Moe did all the, all the work. And then they just hugged. And that was it. That was the end of this atrocious, atrocious garbage. Not the pay-per-view, sadly. We had a video package for The Undertaker, which hyped his return at Survivor Series, and then this was followed by another video package, which which hyped Bret Hart versus the winner of Diesel versus the British Bulldog for the WWF Championship in, in the main event of Survivor Series, or, as Bret Hart would say, in the main event of the Survivor Series. Doc Hendrick strikes again. This time he's in the ring with Gorilla Monsoon, which is a plus. At least he's not trying to flog us any old tap. And out comes Dean Douglas to receive his WWF Intercontinental Championship because Shawn Michaels cannot compete. And why can't he compete, I hear you ask? 
Well, let's go back into one of the most infamous stories in professional wrestling history, shall we? All the way back to October the 13th, 1995. Now, disclaimer here. I get my information from, you know, what I remember from websites I trust, etc. Some things you just don't need to look up, some things you remember. And this is the account that I remember. If it differs from what you've heard, then maybe I'm wrong, maybe you're wrong, but these are the bare bones of what happened. After a WWF house show in Syracuse, New York, Shawn Michaels, David Boy Smith, and Shawn123Kid Waltman went to, I think it was Club 37, where Michaels hit on the girlfriend of a serviceman. Now, I can't remember whether he was Army, whether he was Navy. He might have been Navy. It, I, 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 don't, I don't remember. But after attempts to ask Sean to back off failed, the serviceman was told by an egotistical Shawn Michaels, because this was 95 Shawn Michaels, you know, the world was his oyster. Nothing could hold him back. So, lovely, charming, egotistical Shawn Michaels told the serviceman that he was a big star and he was going to take his girlfriend back to his hotel. And yes, the ego got the better of him. Now, like I said, there are various reports and accounts of what happened next, but the most famous is that 10 servicemen followed Shawn Michaels, Davy Boy Smith and Shawn Waltman from the club. And once all three were in their ride back to the hotel, dragged Shawn from the car and battered him senseless. Now, I have to... Add here that Shawn Michaels was very drunk and half asleep when this happened, so wasn't able to defend himself. Though, depending on which wrestlers you believe, he wouldn't have been able to defend himself anyway. He was that much of a pussy in 95. Reports say that the car door was slammed on his head, his face was smashed into the bumper of the car, and he was stomped and kicked on the pavement with steel boots. And I remember them saying his eyelid was almost completely torn off as well. Sean Waltman then got out of the car, tackled one of the men, followed by Smith, and then the rest of the servicemen piled in. Smith choked one of them out, but ended up nearly having his own eye, eye gouged out, sorry, and then brawled with the perpetrator. It all ended when the bouncer pulled a gun on everyone, and the serviceman ran away. Sean was taken to the hospital, eyelids sewn back on, disgusting, uh, but he was reported to have no concussions. That was a complete storyline fabrication to get him out of the match with Shane Douglas because his ego just couldn't handle performing with everyone knowing what happened. Davy Boy Smith suffered a broken blood vessel around his eye and the damage was visible, I believe, the next night on Raw. I remember that. He looked at right state. Sean Waltman was uninjured. It is worth noting, however, that the servicemen stated afterwards that it wasn't ten of them. It was just one who knocked Sean Michaels out. However, that didn't, and I don't believe it you know, ever did correspond to eyewitness reports. So, with that said, Sean came out to forfeit the WWF Intercontinental Championship, and you know, he, he could have fought Dean Douglas, he just chose not to. Let's be completely honest. He was a fragile little soul in 1995. 
He had ideas above his station. He knew that Vince was going to put the, the WWF Championship on him at some point. Yet, he didn't want to fight and potentially lose to, to Dean Douglas. Because the click couldn't stand Shane Douglas. I won't go into it all now. Uh, for more on the click and Shane Douglas, see mine and Travis's review of In Your House 3 last week. As he was looking at the championship for what seemed like an ice age, there was more resentment on his face than disappointment and sadness. And then when Douglas snatched it from him, well, if looks could kill, Shawn Michaels looked at Douglas like he'd come into his house on Christmas Day and pissed on his turkey. It was a look of absolute, we're going to make sure you're buried. And lo and behold, they did. Dean Douglas wouldn't get a chance to enjoy his Intercontinental Championship reign, however, because next out of the gate was Razor Ramon. And our next match was Ramon versus Douglas for the Intercontinental title. And of course the Click were never going to allow Douglas to keep that championship. Of course they weren't. They absolutely despised him. And this match was the epitome of one of the members of the Click just doing everything he could to bury a you know a, a new a new character a new talent etc whatever you want to class him as Razor spent an age working on Douglas's arm but the story just wasn't there it wasn't though he, you know Douglas had a, a bad arm and Razor was going to it no 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 this was a it must have gone eight nine minutes let's say ten max I might be wrong it might have gone longer might have gone shorter. That 10 minutes could have been spent um, Razor Ramon trying to get revenge for his friend who Douglas had basically just you know, spat on in the middle of the ring by snatching the championship. He could have spent it trying to get revenge for the fact that Douglas cheated him at In Your House 3. But he didn't. He didn't go after him like a man possessed. This started just like any other match would and it was all just very unbothered and neither man looked like they wanted to be there. You know, Razor didn't want to be working with Douglas. Douglas didn't want to be working with Razor. Scott Hall mocks him and clearly enjoys it by slapping him across the head at any available opportunity. His heart's just not in it. And, you know, you, you can make any excuse for Scott Hall, but you're on pay-per-view. I get that you don't like the bloke, but be professional for Christ's sake. The end came, and the end, dear God, what the fuck was this ending? The end came when Razor hit a back suplex, just a normal belly-to-back suplex that we've seen a hundred million times on Shane Douglas, pins him, Douglas gets his foot underneath the bottom rope, but the referee doesn't see it, counts to three, and awards the match to Razor Ramon. Terrible ending, terrible match, absolutely lazy. Nobody believed that Dean Douglas would be put down with a, a standard belly-to-back suplex. He could have just kicked out. He could have got his shoulder up. Razor didn't even bother to pin his shoulders to the mat. He, he just had... It was almost like a lazy arm over him. It was a half ass cover. Douglas could have grabbed the rope with his hand in full view of referee. He clearly could have kicked out. It was just a logical, lazy, terrible... And I get that, you know, they didn't want to work with each other. But fuck me. Give people a match they want to see. You, you, you've sat backstage and watched this pay-per-view descend downhill rapidly. 
Don't go out there and do everything you can to add to the decline. Try and, you know, perk it up a bit. And for as bad as Shawn Michaels and Reyes Ramon and Kevin Nash, etc., saying, you know, how bad Shane Douglas was in 95, and he wasn't all that when he came from ECW, even though he came in with a reputation. Douglas could still, you know, put on a good match. Scott Hall could put on a good match. Why not just do it? This is, <clears throat> excuse me, this is the last time you're going to work together. At least make it memorable. Tripe. Absolutely. Do not watch this. And I, I don't know whether it is, but if this is on any compilation of the greatest intercontinental matches of all time, or even, you know, the greatest in-your-house matches of all time, I know there's a three-disc set out, then whoever compiled that wants a kick in the bollocks. Bret Hart comes out, yes, finally, a Canadian, on a Canadian show, who'd have thought it? And he is to serve as the colour commentator for the WWF Championship match between Diesel and brother-in-law Davey Boy Smith, British Bulldog. Let's not forget that Bret Hart has a vested interest in this match now, because he will face the winner in the main event of the Survivor Series. And I'm going to put the in front of pay-per-view names now, just to annoy people. There is a nice moment when he beats up Jerry Lawler at ringside and Lawler hightails it. I mean, we thought we'd got the end of the Bret Hart-Jerry Lawler thing, but WWF were you know, adamant on, on pushing it to the hills. Lawler bails, and then we get Diesel versus the British Bulldog for the WWF Championship. The main event, and I'm... Um, Hand on heart, the only main event I can possibly compare to Diesel versus King Mabel at SummerSlam 1995. Jesus. Before Diesel comes out, Doc Hendricks catches him backstage. And Diesel says he's feeling awful funky. And yes, those are the actual words he actually used. Why do we do this? I'm not going to weigh too heavy on this match because it was absolutely terrible. And when I say terrible, it's the definition of the word terrible. It was on par, like I said, with Diesel and Mabel at SummerSlam. It was that bad. Timing issues, botches, and just when the match needed an injection of pace and entertainment, the Bulldog goes to Diesel's leg and stays there for 15 minutes. Had to have been. Had to have been 15 minutes of Davey Boy Smith doing every leg hold he ever learnt at, at training school. And he didn't even do them in an entertaining fashion. Dull, long rest holds. They both looked like they'd been masturbating for a month after this. And the end comes when Davey Boy slaps Brett at ringside. Brett gets in, beats him up. And Bulldog wins by disqualification. And that's it. That's it. 15 minutes of rest holds. I might be exaggerating. It might be less. But, you know, all that time full of rest holds for a disqualification finish. Terrible. Awful booking. The epitome of 1995 booking. And then, after this, Diesel and Brett get into it to build their Survivor Series match. They have to be pulled apart. And In Your House Goes Off The Air. For us, for those in attendance, um, they had three dark matches 
after this. Henry Godwin defeated Sid. Bret Hart defeated Isaac Yankum. 14 minutes and 10 seconds that went. Almost as long as their terrible SummerSlam match. Oh, God. And then Owen Hart and Yokozuna defeated Bam Bam Bigelow and Savio Vega. So they couldn't give us Bret and Owen on the main card. But they gave the live audience a double dose of Yokozuna. Because that's just what you want in 1995. It, it baffles me that you know Bret and Owen weren't on the main card. Two of the most popular Canadians in the company. And you don't put them on a card or a pay-per-view held in Canada. Which would have lifted the spirits. After this travesty of a wrestling show. To see both men in the ring would have lifted you know, spirits. But we didn't get that. And it summed the company up in 1995 really. Clueless, directionless, out of touch. And you know, it rings a bell for modern day. My final grade for In Your House 4, The Great White North, it's got to be an F for fucking pathetic. Honestly, the opening match, fine. The tag team match, entertaining enough. The rest of it was absolute trash. Main event was the most disappointing and boring thing since uh, Mabel and Diesel. Possibly the second worst main event of 1995 and we have had Diesel and Psycho Sid on three different occasions you know from I won't say from top to bottom because like I said two matches were worth watching the rest wasn't don't go out of your way to watch this it's an utter utter disappointment and it's shocking that after King of the Ring after this that WWF managed to attract anyone to Survivor Series and In Your House 5 let alone Raw and the you know, the plethora of house shows they used to, used to put on. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, for sticking with me. I know it's been a slog, but we will get used to this format until Travis returns. Until next time, you can catch me on Twitter at The Perfect Tenant. Catch Travis on Twitter at The Habiki TMD. Unionsmack.bigcartel.com Grab a t-shirt, grab some merchandise from all of Travis's shows. And Lulu.com where you can pick up my first book, The Undertaker, A Trip Down Death Valley. In September, NXT UK Year 1 will be available after so much hype and so much work. So please grab a copy and show us some love. I will be back with you next week for In Your House 5, The Train Carries On. We're not stopping, we're going right to the end if it kills us. But until next time, my friends, have a good week. Take care of yourselves. Cheerio, mates.